Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we discuss life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I have Rachel Harris back on the show, and if you missed part one of our discussion, tune in to that first, and this is part two of our discussion, and we're talking about Rachel's book, Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, PTSD, and Anxiety. So I wanted to sort of continue because we were talking last week about where, about how ayahuasca works. But I know that you also talk in the book about it being similar, that some of the chemicals that are released during an ayahuasca ceremony or maybe the use of ayahuasca are similar to the chemicals that our brain releases during the dying process. Can you explain that? No, that's been debunked. We don't know enough yet. There, oh, there was a mis- there okay. was a misinterpretation of uh, some early work that was done with DMT. Um, the spirit molecule, the guy who wrote the spirit molecule, whose name escapes me right now, and he was hypothesizing that perhaps DMT, DMT is produced by the pineal gland, and, and he was hypothesizing that maybe it was released at birth and or death, but it has not been confirmed. So that's been debunked. We just don't know enough. There's a lot of research to be done, and we just don't really know enough at this point. Are they still exploring that as a possibility or it's not? I don't know of any research that's specifically looking at that. They'll eventually get around to it. Um, the, because this is a concoction of two plants, um, there's a lot in the mixture. And we don't really know all the therapeutic benefits of it. So there's been some early work on the ayahuasca vine itself that might be helpful for Parkinson's disease, for instance. But we don't know, and you know, it hasn't been tested enough. So that's, that's way down the road. Is part of why it hasn't been tested enough because it's a plant? Yes, it's more difficult, and it's more difficult to control. The, you don't have a standardized um, concoction that you can make in a lab. So it's different. And then, you know, I, I want to do more justice to what we, because we were talking as two Western therapists. But I have to say, mm-hmm. I've learned a, a lot from um, some of the shamans I know. And when they talk about, well, how does ayahuasca work? It is, it is seen as a, a, a healing process that's cleansing, that clears your energy fields. You know, we didn't get this in graduate school. No, but I wish we would have. <laughs> so the medicine and the singing that goes on in ceremonies is clearing the energy field inside the body and around the body. And so there's a, it's really about sort of cleansing. And that's where the purging comes in, that that's kind of a cleansing and then an opportunity for rebalancing. So that's a very different way of talking about how does this work? It's, it's certainly seen as a medicine. How does it heal? And this is just a little bit of the understanding that I have from a shamanic point of view of how it heals. But it's, um, you know, my attempt as a Western psychologist to explain it is in, in a way disrespectful labeling on top of 
their the indigenous people's cosmological understanding of how it's healing, mm-hmm. which is their own their own understanding. Is there a process? How long is the the ceremonial process? Ayahuasca is generally a six hour, but people will, you know, maybe they'll drink and it's done in the evening. So a ceremony might begin at 10 o'clock at night and then maybe around four or five in the morning, people are sleeping and, um, and they've, they've come down or they're, or they're able to fall asleep. They're quiet enough that they can fall asleep. So it's, this is shorter than uh, LSD, for instance. Mm-hmm. And and who is this for? Is can anybody take ayahuasca? Or are there certain well, the, there are some contraindications you know. and some risks for people that uh, certainly I I would not recommend. So anyone with a history of of uh, schizophrenia or psychosis, I would say it's not worth the risk. And the same mm-hmm. with bipolar. Any bipolar because you don't want to spark a manic episode. And I just and right. there are some people who are saying no, it's it's okay, it can be done carefully, but I I would not recommend it. Also, other people who are contraindicated are people who are still on any of the serotonin and antidepressants, the SSRIs, because there's a mm. risk of serotonin poisoning, which is very dangerous. So that should not happen. Now, having said that, I want to say. Um, I, I say a couple of things to people when they ask, well, how do I know if this is a legitimate ceremony or not? And I say, well, you know, before you go into any ceremony, there should be a screening of some sort asking you about your medical history and what medications you're on now. If they don't ask that, don't go. It's not a safe situation. And um, the other thing I ask, and this is a, a little um, prejudice of mine, is what's the what's the music usually there's music in a ceremony some the shaman is singing or in some situations where the shaman is not trained they'll use recordings and i would really you know i that would be a, a deal breaker for me i would want to go with mm. a shaman who was experienced enough that they knew how to sing during the ceremony because the singing is also the medicine so the singing itself mm-hmm. is a vibration um, that helps to do what the medicine does, and that is that clearing and uh, clarifying of energy fields. And when, so this, these ceremonies are very purposeful, and so you shouldn't you know, I, I don't know if you can get ayahuasca on your own, but it should be in the context of sort of a controlled setting. Yes, yes. I, I, people should not do any of the psychedelics alone or, um, you know, I think these are sacred medicines and I know people have done them for decades at concerts and that sort of thing. But um, I, I never have and that's not my perspe- that's not my orientation. Mm-hmm. It's really about the healing process that can, yes. can occur and with them. people do not get healed at rock concerts. They might have a good time. They might have a terrible time, but it's, right. it's uh, they don't get healed. So people who then go into a sacred therapeutic situation with any of these uh, psychedelics, they say, well, this is totally different. 
one of the things you address in your book is the notion of something being real versus being helpful. And how, you know, if people have the experience of ayahuasca and they say, someone else debunks and says, well, that wasn't real. What you experienced wasn't real. Does it, that's their, I guess you were sort of saying that's their reality, but if it's helpful, that's what's important. Well, there, there are a couple of layers in this question. Uh, and, and one is, uh, I, 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 when people have an extraordinary or a numinous, a spiritual experience, I really say to them, this is not something to share with a lot of people. Hold it in your heart um, and be very careful who you share it with. Because if, you know, if, uh, if you've had an experience of the world bursting into flame, many people will say, well, that wasn't real. Obviously, that wasn't real. And, and you know, what, what were you on? What was wrong with you? And that sort of can erode that spiritual experience. And so I do suggest to people to be very careful who they talk to about their most profound experiences. On, and, and then the other, another layer of this is I'm a Westerner. I'm, I have not been able to uh, transcend my culture. And so it drives me a little crazy. Is, I mean, I heard the voice of ayahuasca and she gave me explicit instructions. But I, is that real? I don't have a, a good answer for that. I go back and forth. Um, was it helpful? Absolutely. So you can see mm-hmm. two different levels here. Well, and I guess it, it begs the question, what is real? Which is a pretty difficult question, especially when you begin taking psychedelics. They are really introducing you to other worlds that are as real, if not more real, than this one. So. Right. I was going to say, what if this is actually not reality? Right. And that is. Right. But, you know, if you know, we have issues with our parents, it doesn't matter if this is reality or not. We still have to work through those issues. So I'm still on right. sort of, you know, the, the basics of psychotherapy is helpful, whether we understand right. philosophically or not what's going on. Might as right. well do our work. Right. And that, <laughs> right. Right. Because, you know, from what I've learned, if you're not going to do it now here, you're going to you're going to have to do it at some point. So you can't necessarily escape it. Um, How do these drugs help these and other drugs help with this notion of this existential distress, which I mean, I see in my practice, I'm sure you saw in your practice, see, do you do you can. You don't still practice, no, do you? No, no, no. Are you uh-uh. still? Um, but, you know, this, I think particularly, maybe it's always been like this, but it seems even more so in this kind of day and age with everything that we hear all the time. There seems to be sort of this more, this larger existential question that seems to be looming for more people, certainly, that I see about, like, what what is all this? What does this mean? You know, people who are diagnosed and, with cancer, who are having these existential struggles. Well, the, the the part of my question is: Do I have a purpose in life? What's what's the point of my life? Is it what's what what meaning is there in my life? 
what would make my life meaningful? These kinds of questions. And is that part of what you mean by existential distress? Yeah. And how, how does ayahuasca and, and the other psychedelics help with that? And then as soon as you introduce a cancer patient, kind of, or a life, someone in the last stages of their life, reviewing their life, what was, what was most meaningful and important? What was the point of all this? Um, and, and fear of death begins to come mm-hmm. up when there's a terminal diagnosis or, or just aging. Um, and, you know, ther- certainly some therapies, Erwin uh, Ir- Yalom talks about this the most eloquently, but it's not really part of cognitive behavioral therapy to find meaning. I think Yalom talks about everything the most eloquently. Oh, yeah, there's that. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but I have to say the psychedelics and the experience of the numinous of having a spiritual experience creates meaning in itself and it often guides people mm. in ways that they make life choices that are more meaningful to them. So a good many people have felt called in some way. Well, you were saying it yourself. If I didn't have three children, you know, at this point in my life, I would want to do graduate school where I could explore these things more. And so some people feel called to pursue something that's um, that's related to their experience. So certainly a number of people have, I mean, I might say the book came out of this for me. I was called, mm-hmm. so, but people have been called to do film documentaries that, um, that, that talk about the healing potential of ayahuasca, especially with veterans. There are a number of um, documentaries that deal with veterans using ayahuasca ceremonies to help heal their PTSD. So, you know, I've met a lot of people who are, feel called to participate or contribute in some way. So it, th- these experiences open up all these issues of purpose and meaning and mortality in a way that generally regular therapy doesn't do so well. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, certainly as I've started to explore this and open this up, I think it's, it's frustrating to me that if there's something that really is this powerful and this therapeutic that it's so difficult for people to have access to. Right, right. And, and frankly, so natural. Right, all of the above. So mm-hmm. I, I'm working on a new project where I'm interviewing the underground guides. And these are people, they're the elder uh, psychedelic women and they've been working underground for 20 or 30 years. It's not the same as a therapy practice, um, but they have been using these medicines, a whole, the whole array of psychedelics. And um, it's underground because it's illegal. These are illegal practices. And they've been working with people for exactly the same reason that you just described. They felt so committed to the healing opportunity in these in these medicines that they committed their lives and took legal risks in order to offer um, safe situations that allowed the medicines to be used to their maximum healing potential. So, and 
what are they, what are you finding? Or can you speak to it at this point? Like what you're finding in terms of what they're seeing about the human condition and how it's, how it's the, the psychological condition. Well, you know, they don't think that's not, they're, they're really, they're not therapists. That's sort of a therapy or a philosophical. Oh, okay. These women okay. are not therapists. They don't think like that. I mean, for instance, I asked one woman, you know, after the ceremony, do you follow up the next day, the next week? She said, well, we talk on the phone the next day and they can always call me. But no, I'm too busy. I don't see them next week. No therapist would say that. We would never say I'm too busy. No, <laughs> that's the whole purpose. So they don't think like therapists. Um, that's why I say they're sort of like high priestesses um, or medicine women. And there is this other side that the experience itself is so therapeutic that the healing unfolds spontaneously. You know, mm. I don't buy that completely. I'm, but that's a legitimate position. This is really Stan Groff's position, that, that the experience is what heals, and it will continue to unfold. And if you need to do more work, you need to go into that altered state again. So another psychedelic experience or... He does holotropic breath work and something that alters the state of consciousness that allows the healing to continue at that level. I, you know, that's, I think it's a legitimate position. It's just not mine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So are there any, cause I want to end with a quote from your, another quote from your book. Um, cause clearly I really liked the quotes you. in your Thank book. You. Um, but, um, is there anything else that you would like to say today about the ayahuasca experience? Because again, for a lot of people, I think it's really, I think psilocybin, you know, people are starting to hear a little bit more about, but certainly ayahuasca feels more indigenous, more like a healing that happens in indigenous cultures and not necessarily Western culture. That's, that's absolutely correct. It, it happens in indigenous cultures, and many more people are traveling to Peru and Brazil for this experience in Ecuador. Um, there are also uh, ayahuasca churches, we didn't touch on that, that are a mixture of, yes, Christian, very, you know, very Christian, and, and mediumship is a, a significant part of the churches, by the way. You might be interested to look at this. So there's, and these, yeah, you talked about that in the book, I think. Right. And um, two of the churches are legal in the United States and they consider um, ayahuasca to be their sacrament. So it's called, uh, it's called the daimi, the medicine. So it's the Santi, Santo Daimi Church. There are two in Oregon. And then there's a UDV, a Unio de Vegetal in New Mexico. And these are legal churches. So the, their use of the medicine is totally legal. Hmm. And there are more churches that are coming up and, and achieving uh, legal status to use this medicine. So in a way, the, the, the availability has been more in a, in a religious context than in a medical one. Um, mm-hmm. So the research is, is slowest on this because it is a plant concoction. Right, right. And I'm also always thinking like, you know, pharmaceutical companies can't patent a plant. Um, 
they can't patent this. It's and so there's no money in it. <laughs> yeah. Right. So there's not as much necessarily motivation. No, not to- at all. <laughs> so <laughs> you generally, you know, I always want the message for people to be very careful. And um, that means traveling in South America is not always safe. Shaman are not always safe. They're, you know, perpetrators. They're sexual perpetrators among the shaman. This is a different culture. You're very vulnerable when you're under the influence. You know, you get a cup of dark liquid. You have no idea what's in it when, you know, you drink it down. So uh, be very careful. And in the States also, you want to know who the person is responsible for the ceremony and for the people in it so that you so that you're certain you're safe safety is a big Mm -hmm. issue well i just want to end today with this um quote from your book especially in today's culture where it feels like everybody is looking for something to make them feel better quickly or something to provide them sort of immediate happiness. Um, But you say ayahuasca and other entheogens open the most amazing healing opportunities I've seen in a lifetime of psychotherapy practice, but they are not panaceas. We still have to do our psychotherapeutic work, including the deep karmic reservoirs from ancestors, racial or gender loading, or past lives. The challenge of integration following a psychedelic experience implicitly raises the ethical question of what constitutes a good life. How shall we live? How shall we then live? Ultimately, this is the perennial quest, or as Houston Smith expressed it, religiously conceived, the human opportunity is to transform epiphanies into abiding light. It's a beautiful quote. So that's how you ended your... It, it yeah. is. And I just want to thank you so very much for your time oh, Amy, today, for your patience in scheduling this. <laughs> and I'm excited to share this as parts one and two. I also have a woman who went through an ayahuasca ceremony, a friend of mine. So she's going to talk about her experience. And then right. I also have two parts with uh, Alan Davis, who's a psychologist that you recommended right. I spoke to, who was right. wonderful, right? Uh, who was doing research on psilocybin at Johns Hopkins. Yes, yes, he'll be fun. He's fun. He's always fun. He's he's yeah. great. So thank you so much, Rachel. Oh, I really welcome, appreciate it's your been time. Delightful. <laughs> thank okay. you. Good luck. <laughs> like what you heard today and want to hear more? Curious about what comes next and what it all means? You can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to podcasts and find life, death, and the space between and hit subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Ask me any questions you might have. Let me know what else you'd love to hear about or just share your story. I can't wait to hear from you.